Welcome back, everybody. It's me, Matt Tinney, and... Jan Earhart. And you're about to listen to a didactic from the CIT Echo. To learn more about CIT Echo, check it out at gocit.org. You can also send Jen an email at... J-E-A-R-H-E-A-R-T at cobq.gov. Hope to see you guys soon. Enjoy. Bye. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you again for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about personality disorders, specifically the ones that you were most likely to come into contact with uh, as your role as a first responder, uh, which includes our uh, MCT clinicians uh, that are in the room. So our learning objectives for today is that we're going to become familiar with the four most common personality disorders uh, that we contact. We're going to learn some defining characteristics of those personality disorders, and then we're going to discuss some strategies on how to have uh, better interactions with those living with these personality disorders. So I'm going to put up this list. This is the 10 diagnosable personality disorders according to the DSM. And I want you to burn this into your memory because in a second I'm going to ask which four you guys think are most contacted by law enforcement. So I'll give you guys about 45 minutes to look this over, <laughs> and then we'll uh, then I'll ask the question. You guys ready? Um, this was not 45. So what do you guys think? Type in or stay in the room. What what's some of the most common ones you think come into contact with law enforcement? Paranoid. Paranoid. Antisocial and borderline. Yep. We're missing one more. Borderline so, antisocial. Antisocial. Schizotypal. I'm thinking no. schizo. Narcissistic. It's not schizotypal. We have not yet said it. Histrionic. Schizoid. Nope. Um, you guys should think about not the offenders. <laughs> Who do we come, come into contact with? Dependent personality disorder. I literally was spoon feeding that for my new job. <laughs> so the reason, and it, dependent personality disorder kind of seems, um, you know, doesn't fit in this category, but they come into contact with law enforcement because they're often the victim of crimes. Um, they're often the victim of somebody living with antisocial personality disorder, as it turns out. But most of the time you contact them, uh, they're going to be the victims of crimes, not the perpetrators. Uh, so these are the four uh, that are most commonly contacted uh, by law enforcement first responders, and we're going to get a little bit deeper uh, and more specific into each of these. So I, when I was researching this, I came across this interesting website that had quotes from people that are living with these disorders. It didn't have a name or a source. It's just you know people living with this disorder would talk about it. So I've included one in, in all the main title pages. And somebody with paranoid personality disorder said, your world just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Um, because the, the list of people you can trust, the list of places you trust to be, the, the list of places you feel safe, uh, just keeps getting smaller and smaller as your illness uh, continues, especially if you're not getting treatment for that. So some characteristics of uh, paranoid personality disorder. Um, they suspect that others are harming, deceiving, or exploiting them. Um, and that's the, the caveat with this one is that it has to be, there's no evidence to suggest that that is happening and they're still suspecting that, that, that people are harming, deceiving, or exploiting them. If you suspect that and are actually being harmed, deceived, or exploiting them, that's not paranoid 
personality disorder, that's just what's happening to you. Uh, they often read hidden negative or threatening meanings into benign remarks. Um, sometimes it can be as severe as, you know, a newspaper article that has nothing to do with them. They'll read something uh, in this newspaper article and things that directly relate to them. You know, there's a conspiracy. Um, everyone's in on it. The police are in on it. The FBI are in on it. The newspapers are in on it. Uh, their, their conspiracy theories can really get quite grandiose. Um, they persistently bear grudges. If you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. If, you, if they really believe that people are harming or deceiving or exploiting them, they're often going to hold grudges and sometimes without any merit at all. And then, of course, they're reluctant to confide or trust in others. So they often, isolation is one of the key characteristics of somebody that's living with untreated uh, paranoid personality disorders. Um, so let's look at some examples from Hollywood. So Fox Mulder. Um, if you watch, if you're a fan of the X-Files, uh, there's really never been proof to what he's saying, you know, but he absolutely believes it. And on, often in direct contradiction to what Scully, what science is saying, he'll still believe that, you know, aliens are doing this and aliens are doing that. And then, of course, conspiracy theory is like your classic case of somebody living with paranoid because. Uh, paranoid personality disorder. Um, so we have two Hollywood examples there. So some interaction tips for you guys. Always use good safety procedures. We all know that even the, the most meek of species will lash out if they feel cornered, if they feel trapped. And somebody that's living with paranoia, yes, ma'am? Fainting goat. Fainting goat. I'm not sure why that species still exists. Yeah, it's like the worst defense out. mechanism ever. <laughs> They just make themselves easier meals. I think without humans saving them, they would probably be extinct. It's not a very good. But uh, yeah, so always use good safety procedures. Um, you can imagine how you would feel if you thought everyone was out to get you. Um, you would probably arm yourself. You would probably feel cornered, feel trapped, and more likely to lash out. Um, so use your good officer safety procedures. Um, keep in mind that people that think people after them often arm themselves, often have access to weapons close by. Uh, oftentimes, we, it can be difficult not to challenge their reality um, because, like I mentioned, um, their conspiracies are so grandiose. There's just no way that that's possible, right? There's no way all these things are going on. Going on. And we want to say to them, you know this can't be true. Think about what you're saying. This absolutely cannot be true. Challenging the reality is never going to be productive. Imagine if somebody told you that your reality right now as the stance is not correct. Um, it just, it, it starts an argument. It starts a back and forth that you probably won't win. Uh, and it can really destroy any kind of rapport building that you're trying to do. So challenging the reality, um, it's, it's harder to not do that than it is. Uh, just make sure you guys aren't doing that. It's not really productive. Reassuring their safety can go a long way. It really can. Their number one, that's my number one tip for interacting with somebody that's paranoid is uh, making them feel safe. That can go a long way in building rapport with somebody, go a long way in getting the result that you want. And if they have reasonable requests, like, uh, can we talk inside? Uh, I'd rather close the door and talk inside because I think people outside are, are trying to get me. Or can we leave the door open because I don't feel comfortable with you in here? or whatever the case may be, as long as it's productive. If, if their request is to you know, have a samurai sword with them while you're talking to them, 
that's probably a request you can't really uh, grant. But if they're making reasonable requests and it helps them feel safe, go ahead and, and do that for them. And remember, your confidence and level-headedness can help de-escalate that person. If they see you as a strong force, someone able to guarantee their safety, uh, it's going to be much easier uh, to have a conversation with them. It's going to be much easier to get them to do what you need them to do. Um, so remember to be confident, be level-headed, even if they're in the midst of a crisis uh, and they think you know that there's snakes all around them or the government's planting chips in them or whatever the case may be. If they see you not panicking, it helps them to calm down. Um, one tip would be not to tell them to calm down. I'm not sure that telling someone to calm down has ever worked in the history of human interaction. Uh, but if you can display that with your professionalism, it can help your interactions. <laughs> Dependent personality disorder. Matt. So Matt, you have a question. How far when you're working with someone that might have paranoid personality disorder, how far do you investigate or look into that paranoid thought? So that's a great question. So one, one of my biggest pet peeves um, is I'll I'll see a report or I'll hear an officer say, you know, this person called. They say that there's people on the roof walking around. Um, I know that they're living with mental illness, so I didn't check. I just I know they're they're full of it. It's not happening. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. I really believe that people living with mental illness have just. What's going on, man? <laughs> my chairs are noisy. They want to interrupt you. Well, you cannot succeed in that. <laughs> so I really believe that people living with mental illness have just as much right to have police investigate what they're saying as anyone else does. So please, if someone is saying that these things are happening and those things could happen, investigate that first. Rule that out um, before, I mean, because there could be people walking around on their house, on their roof, right? Um, so investigate that first. If that's not the case, then you can go into working uh, what, whatever else you have to do, but please take their take their concerns seriously um, because you never know; it, it could actually be true. That's your question. All right, dependent personality disorders. So the quote said, "I am not complete without someone else," and that's really how they feel. As we move into characteristics, you'll see one of them is a need for others to assume responsibility for a large portion of their life, and unfortunately. When you give someone the keys to large portions of your life, they may or may not have your best interests at heart. And all too often with somebody with a dependent personality disorder, maybe they're in a domestic relationship and it's just not in their best interest and they don't have a way out. And we see this a lot with DVs. Uh, and I'll go into that a little bit more when we get to the tips for interacting. But some other characteristics, uh, difficulty making decisions without excessive assurances and advice. You know, they need to be reassured several times before they're even able to make a what seemingly is a simple decision. Unrealistic fears of being left alone. Urgently seeks a new relationship when one ends. Uh, and again, that relationship may be completely against their self-interest, uh, but they need somebody there. Uh, and then they go to excessive lengths to please others. So when I was looking for examples of, of this um, in mainstream media, it's hard to find, uh, but I did come up with Buster from Arrested Development. You guys have ever seen that show? He still lives with his mom. He's very dependent on her. Um, you know, he just he can't separate himself from his mother. And then, of course, we have Snow White, who needs how many dwarves are there? Seven? 
Can someone name them? Do you know them, Matt? Uh, grumpy? Yep. Happy? Bashful? <laughs> Sleepy? Beardy? <laughs> Patty? Two happies and a beardy. Nailed it. <laughs> so Snow White, if you actually read the story, she is really dependent on these dwarves. She can't separate herself from them. Um, so it's an example of one of the few that I could find of uh, mainstream. Uh, Niels doesn't like when I diagnose real people uh, because I'm not qualified. Yeah. Uh, so I was the one to find that. Sorry, Gomez, just so you know, it looks like your phone or your mic might be open. So some tips with interactions. Uh, so the first one I want to hit was kind of I alluded to earlier, and it's be patient understanding about the individual's seemingly poor choices. Uh, it's really easy to say, why do you keep going back to this person? You know they're not good for you. You know that they're going to not change their behavior and you're going to end up in this same situation. As law enforcement, um, it can really be frustrating when we go to the same domestic violence over and over and over again. Um, and it seems like that person's just not making good decisions. They might be living with a dependent personality disorder, um, and it's not their fault. So be patient and understanding about even their poor choices. Offer choices and then help empower that individual to make decisions. Um, not make the decision for them, but give them a couple of choices uh, and then work together to, to find a solution to that. So empowering them, giving them a little bit of control over their life, uh, even in that moment, can help you uh, build good rapport, help get the result that you want out of that interaction. Always be transparent. If you're going to have to call for, uh, I don't know, ambulance or fire department, don't make that a secret. Um, if you're going to have to arrest uh, a significant other, uh, don't be subversive about that. Uh, always be transparent in your interactions. Let them, let them know what's going to happen. It um, uh, can go a long way. Uh, and reassure the individual that they are not alone in that situation. Use terms like, we're in this together, I'm here till the end, uh, I'm going to help you make, that sounded weird, <laughs> I'm here till the end of this interaction, I'm going to leave you alone. <laughs> if you just go in there creepily and say, I'm here till the end, that might have a negative effect on the interaction. But we would like that look out for you. I'm here till the end. <laughs> Reassure the individual they're not alone in their situation. Uh, let them know that you're going to be there through the process. Um, but don't lie to them. Uh, if, if you can't be there the whole time at the hospital, uh, let them know that you're going to be there as long as you can. If, you, if they need to go to the hospital for whatever reason, you know, if you can transport them there, let them, let them know you're going to be with them until you get to the hospital. You're going to let the, the intake staff know what's going on, uh, and then at some point you're going to have to leave. Again, just be transparent. Let them know that you're, you're there for them, and they're not alone. Borderline personality disorder. Uh, the best quote I found was, I hate you, please don't leave me. Uh, it really sums up uh, what this illness is about. Um, and borderline personality disorder, I think, is one of the personality disorders that a lot of misconceptions come with. And I think oftentimes this can get confused with bipolar. Um, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, this person was happy one minute and then yelling and screaming in anger the next minute. They have bipolar disorder. And that's really not an indication of bipolar, it might be an indication of borderline personality disorder. With bipolar, the moods kind of are, you know, stable for longer periods of time. 
uh, as opposed to borderline personality disorder. Some characteristics. They have a distorted or disturbed self-image. They don't see themselves correctly. You know, they may see themselves uh, less worthy, less attractive, all that kind of stuff. So with that comes a, a number of different disorders, uh, including you know, some of the eating disorders, self-harm issues, all that stuff stems from this distorted or disturbed self-image. Uh, one of the defining characteristics is an unstable and chaotic personal relationships. Um, all of their relationships, from their family to their friends to their significant others, there's instability and chaoticness there. They have intense or uncontrollable emotions that often seem out of proportion for what's going on. You know, they may blow up in anger over the smallest little mistake, or they may start crying at, you know, uh, uh, just a seemingly minuscule event. They have impulsive and dangerous behaviors, and they will frantically avoid abandonment. Um, and they can really become dangerous to themselves or to others if they feel that they are being abandoned. Uh, so we'll kind of talk about that when we go from tips for interactions. Uh, but some examples, uh, we have Darth Vader here, just a really classic example of somebody living with borderline personality disorder. And I read a, a, an article that's saying the writers of the movie and George Lucas actually were basing his personality off that particular diagnosis. Um, you know, he always had to fit in somewhere. He had a very negative image of himself, the image of what she actually became in Darth Vader. And then on the right here, we have Brandon Marshall, the professional football player who has been open about his struggles with borderline personality disorder. And I wanted to put him in here because, you know, borderline personality disorder is a very difficult diagnosis, but it doesn't mean that your life is over. Um, there's recovery. There's several celebrities that, that live with this, and Brandon Marshall's a professional football player. Uh, they have struggles in their life, um, but there's always hope for recovery. There's always hope for management uh, in this diagnosis. So some interaction tips. I can't stress this enough. When you guys are out and you suspect borderline personality disorder, or you know that going in there ahead of time, conduct thorough self-harm and suicide investigations. Looking at the percentages for self-harm, it's like 50 to 80% of people living with um, borderline uh, will self-harm, and about 10% uh, kill themselves, commit suicide. And that's, I mean, it, that's a, a really high number. So especially if they're going through a turbulent time in their life, conduct thorough investigations. And if they need to go to the hospital, you guys even suspect the slightest self-harm or suicide may occur, get them to the hospital, get them where they need to go. Um, setting boundaries is, is particularly important with this diagnosis. One of, they can be very hypersexual. They can be very manipulative. Um, and now, especially for police, uh, everything we do is pretty much on camera, right? So if you have somebody that's flirting with you, uh, being hypersexual with you, and you're not immediately setting boundaries to that, that can look like you're flirting back. That can look like, you know, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. Um, so set those boundaries if you notice that kind of behavior and just set them uh, up front. Could you give some examples? Sure. Um, so I wasn't actually sure of this woman's diagnosis back when I was a uniform uh, officer, but she would request me specifically because I had responded to a burglary at her house. Uh, and then, you know, the next time I responded, she said she was scared and she thought the, the burglars were back. So I responded and when she answered the door, she had very little clothing on. Um, and I let her know right up front, that's not appropriate. If you're going to call the police, 
Yes. Just listening to you. <laughs> if you're going to call the police, then you, you need to be addressed appropriately. Uh, and then, you know, she would she would make comments that weren't appropriate, and I just have to address them right away. And then eventually got to the to the part where she would request me so often uh, that my sergeant finally had to say, you're not going out there anymore. Um, this is clearly about something else other than, than law enforcement interactions. Uh, but, yeah, you can really get yourself into trouble if you don't set those boundaries early. Or, you know, it seems like you're maybe playing into them or whatever. Um, validating their emotions and feelings for somebody living with this is so important. And uh, honestly, I think that it's one of our best skills, no matter what population you're dealing with, is validating someone's emotions. Um, so if, if they seem upset, just say that. You seem upset. What's going on? Letting people know that what they're feeling isn't abnormal or what, what they're feeling is valid uh, just opens the door for a better interaction in general. Uh, it's a very powerful tool. Um, we teach it uh, as a part of active listening. Uh, and it's so powerful that, you know, I, I had to call Comcast customer service like three months ago. And those of you who have experienced that particular ordeal, it's not very fun, right? But I was upset. My cable was down for like three weeks. People have been trying to fix it. I was mad and I was yelling. And then the, the woman on the other end said, you know, you seem really upset. And I go, yeah, I do. I am. Wait, I know what you're doing. <laughs> Don't try to act as listening to me. But it's so powerful that even though I knew exactly what she was doing, in that moment, I felt like she really understood where I was coming from. Um, so validating someone's emotions and feelings, regardless of what they are, you don't have to justify them, but validating those exist uh, can make your interactions better. And then don't take it personal. They're, they may say some nasty stuff. Um, if they feel like even for a second, uh, you're not on their side, they may lash out. Um, so they're going to say some, some awful stuff to you guys. Don't take it personal. Realize it's not, it's a part of the illness. Um, it's not what you guys are doing because what happens is, and it's, it's hard not to take it personally when they say something like that. But what happens is, is you'll say something back, then that's all the justification that they needed and your interactions is completely dissolved from down there. So if you're, if you're interested in helping this person, getting them where they need to go or making them safer, uh, just don't take it personally. It's not worth it. Could you talk a little bit more sorry, about boundaries? Because I know officers have difficulties with setting them on frequent callers. Yeah. So I don't know if, if you have any examples of you know, people calling different shifts about the same complaint or constant callers. Like, how do you set those boundaries or say things? Uh, do you have a specific example? Like a specific type of event? Let's say a frequent caller that shops cops calls and like, hey, you need, you know, you need to go and cite the car up front. If they don't, then they call and ask for a different officer. It's the same type of complaints. So I would, I would be very honest with that person. You know, it seems like what you're doing is you're looking for a police officer that will um, just be at your beck and call to do exactly what you want to do. And I would just be very transparent about that situation and say that's, that's not what we're here to do. Is, and if, if you have a valid concern, we're happy to address that. Um, but, and it's just preparing for the fact that it's not always going to be you as the officer. And they need to make sure uh, that they have a valid complaint um, if they want to call police. And if it gets to the point where they're constantly calling and there's no valid complaint, then we, we have laws for that. You know? And you have to tell them, if you keep engaging in this behavior, you're going to be cited for emergency uh, call abuse. Uh, so, 
and then yeah just make those boundaries very clear about what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do even if it's just for the sake of the camera that's attached to you uh, people looking back on it because what can happen is if you set boundaries and they don't like it um, they may be vindictive they may say something that didn't happen you know, they may accuse you of doing something they may accuse you of, of not doing something so it's important that you guys set those boundaries on camera uh, and, and set them up front. Uh, does anybody else have a interaction like that? Uh, no, I had a question related to this. So, sure. um, is this demographic more prone to accidental suicide or unintentional suicide? I would imagine so. I don't have the stats, but anytime self-harm goes up, chances of accidentally dying from that, I assume, also go up, uh, which is why it's so important to conduct those thorough investigations when you and you guys um, go out there. Do you know that, Dr. Martin? Yeah. Have a higher rate. Sorry. Does someone that's diagnosed with or the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder? Do they have a higher rate of suicide completion than the general population? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, every diagnosis comes with different rates of completion, and bipolar disorder tends to be one of the higher ones. So I would say the number of attempts with with borderline personality disorder is much higher compared to other diagnoses, but I'm not I'm not certain about completion. Yeah. Any more questions about borderline personality disorder before we move on to the really interesting one? So antisocial personality disorder. The okay. quote I found most interesting was, I don't feel anything. And of course we have Mr. Burns on here. It's a very good representation of antisocial personality disorder, as we will see. So some of the characteristics, failure to conform to social norms, that's one of the more benign ones. Impulsivity and failure to plan ahead. A reckless disregard for safety of others. And that's the one that's gonna put them in contact with us as law enforcement so many, so many times. Um, lack of remorse and empathy, uh, and deception for personal gain. Uh, these are all characteristics of uh, somebody living with antisocial personality disorder. Um, this is the disorder that probably 95% of serial killers have, the other 5% being um, like a psychotic disorder or something like that. Um, but they, starting from a very young age, as early as 15, 14, um, they have a, a disregard for social norms and disregard uh, for other people. And I think in order to have the diagnosis of antisocial, you have to first be diagnosed with a conduct disorder. Um, and conduct disorders are usually diagnosed prior to turning 18. Uh, so these characteristics are seen from a very young age, um, and then they carry on through life. Um, studying serial killers as much as I have, I know that kind of probably at the core of the vast majority of people that later get diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder is some kind of childhood trauma, um, whether it's abuse, uh, whether it's, you know, they had, they were exposed to some horrific event. Uh, so many of those um, end up being our antisocial personality disorder. So there's obviously some connection there. Uh, there's also a genetic connection that some studies have suggested. Um, people with parents that have this diagnosis are more likely to carry that as well. So I found some examples of this, and these examples are pretty specific. So I was looking at the writers of these characters. So um, the, the writer of Sherlock Holmes uh, wrote that character to be a psychopath. And psychopath and sociopath are older terms for what we call antisocial personality disorders. 
And the same with the dragon from The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, Smog. He was written, he was written to be a, a psychopath. And then I don't know if you guys know who this guy is in the corner there. Does anybody know who that is? Is that from Flash? It is the not evil guy from no. I think somebody's chatting in. It's not from Flash. That is Khan. I don't know where the. <laughs> oh, Brian Carr, you ruined it. So, yeah, I was doing some research, and one actor has played all three of these parts. And it is Bumper Nickel Cabbage Patch. <laughs> so, if Mr. Cabbage Patch's missus disappears, color me unsurprised. But, yeah, all three of these writers. Uh, wrote those characters to be psychopaths, antisocial personality disorders. Now, part of my job here at CIU is to help destigmatize mental illness. And that's particularly challenging when we're talking about antisocial personality disorders. But Sherlock Holmes is a good example of someone living with that um, that can be successful. There's a, a famous detective who I've talked about before named Lieutenant Joe Kenda of the Colorado Springs uh, Homicide Unit. Um, and he's also been open about having received this diagnosis, and he's been open about how it is how it's um, affected his career in a positive way. Um, he solved like 380 homicides out of the 400 that he received in his career, and he said that having this particular diagnosis helped him because he was able, when he was interviewing potential suspects, he was able to you know have a mastery over his own emotions. He knew. You know, kind of what the other person was thinking if they were also had this diagnosis. Um, he's a very interesting guy, and you can tell it anytime. It's a famous TV show that he has. So if you watch one episode, you kind of know that something's up with this particular detective. And, you know, he, he wrote a book and, and he details about how he lived with antisocial personality disorder. But it really is hard to destigmatize this um, because they can be very, very dangerous uh, and they can be very, very hard to treat. Um, what's a positive uh, dragon? You know, Puff. Uh, Puff. Yeah, I guess that's true. So I'm not sure if Puff has this diagnosis, <laughs> uh, but if he does, he's certainly using it to his benefit. <laughs> and he is living with dragonism. <laughs> that's not a diagnosis, I believe. That's a culture. <laughs> so officer safety is clearly paramount. Um, they will not hesitate to hurt you if you stand in the way of what their goal is. They don't, they lack that remorse, they lack that empathy that most, most of us take for granted. Uh, they will always put their self-interest first. Uh, and it can be very surprising. Like, there's no way they're going to do that. And then they did it because it was in their, self, their self-interest. Um, one of the reasons, uh, I was just reading this, that they're so hard to treat this illness is because of how manipulative they can be to the staff that's trying to treat them. And if you're out with them, um, you're going to be the focus of that manipulation. They're going to try to manipulate you to what they want. So you have to be cognizant of that. And then when I was asking Doc uh, Rosenbaum about, you know, how, what, what interaction tips do you have for somebody living with antisocial personality disorder, he kind of mentioned the manipulation. He said it, sometimes it can be helpful for you to play their game, you know, whether that is to appeal to their ego by saying something like, you know, you're a really smart individual, you're obviously very capable, um, whatever it is you need to say, because they'll play the game with you. And if you can use that to your advantage, then it might be beneficial. Uh, and I saw Doc interview a young man 
one time who has this diagnosis and we were, we were worried about him having a firearm. We knew he had one and we wanted his permission to get it. And no matter what we said to him about you know, putting other people at risk, uh, it wasn't good enough for him to give us permission. And finally, Doc said, you know, living with the diagnoses you have, having a gun can be very detrimental to yourself. You know, it could be very detrimental to you. You might, uh, you know, you might think about suicide um, when that, that's not what you wanted. You may have a, a bad day or, or, you know, be intoxicated and think about that. And it was only when Doc said that his safety was at risk that he finally said, okay, I'll give you permission to go get my gun. So Doc kind of used, um, you know, he appealed to that person's ego that was living with antisocial personality disorder to get what we wanted. And that can be, that can be beneficial. It's kind of a dangerous game to play. Um, there's this misconception that all people living with antisocial personality disorder are like masterminds and geniuses, uh, but the research shows that they're just a cross-section of society so that you can have really dumb ones and you can have really smart ones, and then everything in between. Um, so when I was looking this up in the DSM, um, which is like the psychiatrist's Bible, they have something called a deferential diagnosis, which is other things that could be or other things you need to rule out before they get this diagnosis. And one of the deferential diagnoses is criminal behavior not related <laughs> to a mental illness. So being an asshole is a deferential diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Pretty fine. Any questions about the four that we've covered today?